1: Would you please turn in your Bibles to one of the most thrilling passages of Scripture you're going to find, Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. I stand here today to proclaim that Jesus Christ has absolute power over demons. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus Christ has absolute power over the demonic realm. He has effortless power over the demonic realm. It's no struggle, no strain for him to exert his power and his influence Over the devil. And we're going to see that in the text today. I want to convince you of that. And from the start, I give you the doctrine that Jesus has absolute power over demons. But secondly, I'd like to convince you that you need that absolute power. You are surrounded at this present moment by demonic forces of evil that seek to do you harm. They seek to oppose you, oppress you, resist you, tempt you, and destroy you if they can. And you need Christ's power in order to survive. So the major point is that Christ has all power and all authority over demons. The second point is that you need that power. And we're going to see that in the text today. Now, C.S. Lewis, who wrote in his introduction to Screwtape Letters, a marvelous book by the way, uh, a little bit strange, a little bit twisted, advice from a great uh, demon to a lesser demon on how to tempt human beings, really a study on temptation, a study in sanctification. But in Screwtape Letters, in the introduction, he wrote this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. And the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist on the one hand or a magician on the other with equal delight. Now, in the church, in America, in the 20th century, we saw more of the one. Post-enlightenment skepticism. We are a scientific people. We believe that all you need are your five senses. If you can make some observations about the world, you can formulate some theories about how it really functions. And if you can test those theories in a lab through experimentation, you can learn everything that there is to know about the universe. And so... They talk about the God of the gaps, that people need a God if they don't understand science. And the more that science learns, the less you need God to fill in the gaps. And so away with mythology, away from, away with all of those ancient superstitions. We are a scientific people. We are a rational people, a logical people. And therefore, we think of demons somewhat the way you would think about Santa Claus. We've outgrown that concept. Well, that is unbiblical. That is false. Demons surround us at all points. David Powelson put that attitude um, very well when he talked in this way. He said, can a modern person believe that God controls lightning and thunder if a meteorologist can use satellite pictures and computer modeling to predict the storm a week ahead of time? Can a modern person believe that demons could cause paralysis, seizures, and deafness if an EEG, and electromyogram, can map patterns of electrical impulse in the nervous system? You see, that's what we face as scientific people who trust in our own logic, our own science. After a while, we become very thoroughly secularized. And so we don't really see the need for Christ's power and protection against the demonic realm. Well, that is false. Demons are around us right now, making it difficult for you to listen to my sermon. Demons harass us at all points. This is the biblical truth. And if it were not so, then we would have no way to make anything out of the text that we're looking at today. Demons are real. But in some senses, perhaps, at least in some quarters, we may have swung totally to the other side. Paulus said, we've gone out of one ditch into the other ditch on the other side of the road. We have a preoccupation, in some cases, with the demonic. We are essentially spiritual people. We weren't going to stay enlightenment and scientific for long. Sooner or later, we were going to move back toward a spiritualist way of looking at things if we're not going to be Christian. And so there is a present fascination with the occults, with witchcraft. Harry Potter books, for example, speak of a boy that's got power over witchcraft. And they're immensely popular. Or Warner Brothers is appealing to younger generation with one show after another showing uh, people with supernatural occultic powers, witchcraft, really, appealing to a younger generation, and it's working. In the Christian realm, for its part, there's been an incredible interest in the demonic. Uh, probably this is best and most popularly summarized or symbolized by Frank Peretti's novels. How many of you have looked at Frank Peretti, this present darkness and piercing the darkness? Well, these are incredibly vivid books, aren't they? with lurid descriptions of demons. Listen to this one from This Present Darkness. This describes a demon trying to enter into a church building. Try to do it dramatically. A shadow with a shape, an animated creature-like shape appeared, and as it neared the church, sounds could be heard. The scratching of claws along the ground the faint rustling of breeze-blown membranous wings wafting just above the creature's shoulders. It had arms and it had legs, but it seemed to move without them, crossing the street and mounting the front steps of the church. Its leering bulbous eyes reflected the stark blue light of the full moon with their own jaundiced glow. The gnarled head protruded from hunched shoulders and wisps of rancid red breath Seethed in labored hisses through rows of jagged fangs. Now, where in the world did that description come from? I've read the Bible from cover to cover and I don't find any support for that kind of physical description of demons. I think it came from Frank Reddy's incredible skill and his creativity as a writer. Behind that, though, is a whole theology, isn't there? There's a whole approach to spiritual warfare. And behind that is a whole movement, the spiritual warfare movement, which has uncovered some valid things for Christians, or I should say rediscovered some valid things for Christians to be aware of, namely my second point, that you need Christ's power every day for protection from the demonic realm. This is true. But it's gone way beyond the Bible, as Pareti goes in his descriptions here, to talk about such things as spiritual mapping and sanctification by uh, expelling certain demons, demons of lust, demons of overeating, demons of procrastination. And so any sin that you would have would have a demon behind it, and you need to expel that demon, but they come back, don't they? And so you need to keep on it, and you need to have specific words of power. If you don't have special knowledge, they're not going to move. A generalized prayer is not sufficient. There's also a sense, and this is a big theme in, in this present darkness, of territorial spirits that demons can kind of take over a town. And the only way you can get them out is to know what they're about. We're not unaware of his schemes, the Scripture says. Know what he's done. Know the history of it. This is spiritual mapping and and research. And then you're able to pray with special words of power to get those demons out. Have we gone too far the other direction? Have we gone way beyond anything that the Bible teaches? David Powlison, again, in his book, Power Encounters, Reclaiming Spiritual Warfare, speaks of Cynthia and Andrew, a married couple that he counsels. Cynthia once cast demons out of her toaster when it failed to work. Even worse, she and her husband, Andrew, had a remarkable and remarkably destructive way of arguing with each other. For the first five minutes, they warmed up with normal person-to-person bickering. But at a certain point, when the fighting turned nasty, they shifted gears and wheeled in the heavy artillery. They would bind, rebuke, and attempt to cast out demons of anger, pride, and self-righteousness from each other. In Cynthia's words, this is a quote, I saw the demon looking out of his eyes, glittering and murderous. So I said, demon of anger, I bind your power in Jesus' name. Then I claim the power of Jesus' blood as my cover from all demonic assault coming through my husband. Now these folks have marital problems because I'm sure that Andrew was doing the same back to her. Is this a valid approach to spiritual warfare? This is something that we need to return to the Scriptures and see what the Bible says. And as we look at our text this morning, We're going to get some basic principles, and I'd like them to be the bedrock on which that you're going to begin to form your conception of the demonic realm. The central lesson here I've already stated. Christ has absolute sovereign power over all demons. But secondly, demons are most certainly real. They exist and they are active in the world today. Were demons given full sway with absolutely no restriction from God, your life would be somewhat like a living hell on earth. If, on the other hand, demons were completely cleared away from you and couldn't touch you in any way, couldn't tempt you or harass you or in any way cause you any opposition, it would feel somewhat like an 800-pound weight has been lifted from you spiritually. Be something like heaven on earth. The central lesson of this passage is salvation from demonic powers is something that only Christ can do. And He does it Effortlessly. Absolutely effortlessly. Christ's sovereign power over demonic authority is clear. Now, the context in Matthew, the overall book, the point of the book, is to portray Jesus Christ as the King of the Kingdom of Heaven. He is the King of the Kingdom of Heaven. He is the Son of David, He's also the Son of God. And His kingdom is advancing through the world. A king must have power. He must have power over his own subjects, but he must also have power over his enemies. And so he displays that power in this. We've seen already in Matthew 8 Christ's awesome power. His power over sickness. Any sickness, he can cure it with a word. Whether it's leprosy or fever or anything at all, he can do it. We've also seen Christ's power over natural opposition. As he's in that boat and he's going across, there's a terrible, terrible storm. And Jesus just quiets the storm with a word. Peace be still. And it's gone. So we've seen his power over sickness. We've seen his power over the natural realm. Today we're going to see his absolute power over the supernatural realm. Now, what are demons? As we look at the awful power of demons, what are demons? Well, first of all, they are spiritual beings. They live in the spiritual realm. That means they are not physical. Therefore, I struggle with Peretti's five sense description. I think I found one of each of our senses stimulated by his description of that demon. Rancid red breath what is red breath? I have no idea, but that demon had it rancid red breath It's very sensual, but demons are spiritual beings now. They can have a physical impact as we see in this text today But They're spiritual. They were originally angels Now God created the heaven and the earth heavens and the earth He created the spiritual realm and he created spiritual beings in that spiritual realm and Some of them are revealed in the book of Ezekiel the book of Revelation to be quite unusual Uh, We really don't even know what those living creatures are before the throne. They're just spiritual beings of some sort. But God created in the invisible spiritual realm angels. And they were created first, I believe. Because Job 38.7 says that all of the angels, the sons of heaven, sang for joy when God laid the foundations of the earth. So they were there watching and applauding God on and worshiping him while he created the physical world. And they were created good, including Satan himself, the king of the demons. Well, at some point in, in, in ancient history, before the fall of man, demons fell. Satan fell. There was some kind of a rebellion. And Satan was able to, to, to gather up, some people think, from the book of Revelation, a third of all, the, all of the demons or the angels and turn them into demons, rebel angels, who fought against God. And so hell was created for them, was created as a punishment for them. As I read Scripture, they're not in hell yet. They were roaming through the earth, most of them, creating havoc, as it says in the book of Job, where have you been? And, and Satan says, from roaming through the earth and traveling around in it. Now, some of the demons, I believe, as we're going to mention later in the text, are bound up in a deep pit waiting for the day of judgment. They're suffering from Second Peter and Jude. But most of them are free to roam and to create havoc, but they know their time is short. And hell itself was created for them, as we preached in uh, Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, in which... The Lord, sitting on His throne, says to the goats, to the the reprobate, to the, to the rejecters of the gospel, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared, listen, for the devil and His angels. And so hell was prepared for them. A lot of times you see cartoons of, of, of Satan in that weird costume with the pitchfork and all that down in hell, as though that's His own private domain. He's terrified to be there, and I'm going to show that from the text. They're terrified of their judgment. They don't want it to come, but it's inevitable. There is no gospel for them. There's no hope of salvation for them. Nothing but a, a, an expectation of fiery judgment that will come. Well, that's uh, the demons. And it says in, a, in Ephesians 6:12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so there are these. There's the dominions of power, and and the devil, Satan, has a kingdom. Jesus mentions it in Matthew 12. His kingdom is divided if Satan drives out Satan. He's got a kingdom. And there's an order and structure in that kingdom. Powers and rulers and principalities. There's an order there. And they are, his. in effect, his henchmen carrying out his plans, his evil plots. Now, those that's what demons are. What is demon possession? Well, first of all, we wouldn't know that much about it except for the gospel accounts. There's really no record of it in the Old Testament. For the most part, it zeroes in on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the book of Acts. This is where you're going to find it for the most part. We get an example in the large group of people that Jesus healed in Matthew 4.24. We've already seen it. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases. Those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, there it is. Those having seizures and the paralyzed and he healed them. Healed them all. And then in the chapter we're studying now, Matthew 8.16. When evening came, many who were demon possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. Now, in the Greek, the word translated usually demon-possessed really could be translated demonized, demon-harassed. You don't want to use the word possessed as though they have anything lasting because they're heading for hell. They really don't own anything. But I do think that they can inhabit somehow people. That's the only way, I think, to be fair to the biblical uh, text, to be fair to the language. Look, in, for example, in Matthew 12, verse 43 and following, just a page or two over. There, Jesus teaching about evil spirits, you learn so much from Matthew 12, 43 through 45. It says, when an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes to arid places seeking rest and doesn't find it. There, right there, there's a sense that the evil spirit has been in the man. He's lived there. It's like the man is his home. In our text, the demons say, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. There's a sense that they're looking for a resting place. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Looking for a home, basically, a place to rest. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more evil than themselves. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. The last will be worse than the first. In other words, this man now has seven demons living inside of him, plus the original one. And that is how it will be with this wicked generation. And so demons can inhabit, in some sense, a person. Luke 8, 2, uh, it speaks of Mary Magdalene. And out of her, it says, uh, seven demons were cast. So there's the the Greek preposition out of. So the demons came out of her. Now, we don't understand how they came in to begin with. This scripture is absolutely silent on that. And this is the whole one of the problems I have with the... The whole spiritual warfare movement is that they're very specific about how demons can come into you. But the Bible actually doesn't say anything about that. But the demons were in these people. Now, casting a demon out of a person is an act of great spiritual power and authority. In, in Mark chapter 1, verse 23 and following Capernaum, it says, Just then a man in their synagogue, who was possessed by an evil spirit, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. So it's an act of power, an act of authority to be able to drive out an evil spirit. In Acts 19, there's a story of the, of the seven sons of Sceva, the Jewish high priest, who aren't believers, but they hear Paul preach, and they decide they're going to try some exorcism. They're going to drive out demons. And they say, in the name of this Jesus whom Paul preaches, we command you to come out. Well, you don't experiment with these things. The demon says, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And then the man who was demon-possessed beat them up and drove them out of the house naked and bleeding. An incredible act of power, therefore, to drive out a single demon from a person. Jesus has that kind of power. And that's what we're going to see in our text today. So, to be demonized, I think, just means to be so completely dominated and controlled by a demon, even a sense that the demon inhabiting this person, controlling them, so that they're almost, I would say, out of their mind. They have no control over themselves any longer. It is really, I think, a picture of total human powerlessness. The demon-possessed person can do nothing to help themselves. Totally powerless. Now, as we look at the demoniac of the Gadarenes, this was perhaps the most vicious, most powerful of all cases of demon possession you get in the Bible. It's a terrifying thing. Look at verse 28, back in in Matthew 8. It said, when he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. Now, right away we have some interpretive issues. First of all, it has to do with the location. Gadarenes, it says here in our text, sometimes it's called Gergesenes and other spellings, Gerasenes. The best way to take it, I think, is to follow Matthew. And there's a town, Gadara, that was six miles away and that town controlled the whole region right up to the lake. And so Jesus crosses over. Now, this was predominantly a Gentile region, predominantly Gentiles over there. How do we know? Well, they're raising a herd of pigs. Jews would never have raised a herd of pigs. They would have no interest in that. And so this is predominantly a Gentile region. Now, a second interpretive issue has to do with how many demoniacs were there. Matthew has two. The other accounts all just speak of the one. Well, there's no contradiction here whatsoever. You know I'm never going to find a contradiction in the Bible because there aren't any. It's just that Matthew in this one case is a little more uh, explicit than the others. There were two. There's no contradiction. But there is one in particular that all of the accounts zero in on, and it has to do with the one who's got the demon legion inside him, and so he is far more noteworthy, and so the others just zero in on that. Usually, frankly, it's the other way around. Usually, Matthew strips things down, almost problematically so. and gets it very, very uh, succinct, Uh, but in this case, he gives us more information than the others do. Now, we get more information in Luke chapter 8. You don't go there, but just listen. It says, when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. Now, listen, for a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. In Matthew or Luke 8, 29 it says many times the demon had seized him and though he was chained listen hand and foot and kept under guard he had broken the chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places incredible power able to take a chain with his own bare hands and rip it to shreds now i can't imagine who was guarding this guy and what kind of night that was As those chain links start getting stretched out more and more... ...and you're looking with bulging eyes thinking, what's he going to do to me? Finally, he runs into the tomb areas. And how isolated, how desolate, how tragic this man is. Totally apart from human fellowship, apart from love. Out of his mind, out in the tombs... ...and attacking anyone that goes by, viciously attacking... That's what's going on. Tragic consequences. Literally, stark, raving, mad is this man. So violent, verse 28, that no one could pass that way. Now, Matthew does not tell us the aspect of this demon, but that his name is Legion. We get that out of Luke. The demons begged Jesus, verse 31, demons, plural, begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. Now, there was therefore a legion of demons inside this man, Luke 8, 30. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he answered, Legion for there were many demons inside of them. Now, a Roman legion could have anywhere from 3,000 to 6,000 soldiers. Terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Immense power. And yet I believe there was one demon that ruled over them all because in the accounts, the Greek goes from singular to plural, one demon is answering for them all. He speaks for the rest of them. And so there's a sense of authority there and there's a power and a strength. And so we see the terrible, the awesome power of the demons. The terrible power of the demons. But next we see the absolute power of d Verse 29, they say, What do you want with a son of God? They shouted. Now, recently I've been reading a history of D-Day. Great history. Just all kinds of accounts. And by all accounts, the toughest place to land was Omaha Beach that morning because the naval shelling hadn't done the job. There was a cracked Nazi troop regiment right there, just thoroughly entrenched and as soon as the first wave hit the beach, almost without exception, they were mowed down. Perhaps if you saw the movie Saving Private Ryan, the, the, a lot of the information from that movie came from this book by Stephen E. Ambrose. And I, I picture Jesus that way. He's crossing the lake and there's a terrible storm. He quiets the storm and he's almost like in one of those Higgins boats about to land and take enemy territory. And it's an entrenched area, powerful Demonic force there, more powerful than any human being can deal with. He gets out of the boat and immediately these demons confront him. What do you want with a son of God, they shout. Now here we see a little bit of an element of demonic faith. In James 2.19 it says, you believe that there is one God. Good, even the demons believe that and they shudder. Now this tells us a lot about demons. They don't see God all the time, so they've got to kind of believe things about God. They believe that there is one God. Good, even the demons believe that. But this case, they believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Son of God. No human being had come to this conclusion yet. Not even his own disciples. His disciples just got done asking the question, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves do his bidding. The demons knew who he was. And they were beside themselves with terror. They were absolutely terrified. They say in verse 29, what do you want with the Son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? One of the faulty ways you can get into thinking about the demonic realm is that somehow you've got a good kingdom, the kingdom of God, and you've got an evil kingdom, the kingdom of Satan, and they battle it out on more or less equal terms, wrestling through history. That is manichaeism. That is dualism, the good and the evil, battling it out. Utterly unbiblical. God has absolute power and authority and the demons know it, don't they? They are terrified of Jesus. I love the account in John uh, John 18 when Jesus is arrested and there's a cohort, about 600 soldiers there to arrest him and Judas the traitor is there with him. And we've already learned that Judas is inhabited not by a demon, but by who? By the devil himself. When Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him right? And so there's Judas and Judas the traitor standing there with them and Jesus comes out and says who are you looking for? And they say Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus answers in the Greek Ego Emi I am Now every English translation puts in he frustrates me at least the NAS has the, the honesty to put it in italics and tell us that it's not in the Greek all he's saying is I am that is his name he is God he is eternal And when he said his name, I am, the soldiers drew back and fell to the ground with Judas too. Now, who was inside Judas? The devil himself. Falling at the simple statement of Jesus' name. An incredible display of power. Look it up. It's in John 18. It's incredible. And so these demons are terrified. They're absolutely in terror of Jesus. James 4.7, by the way, says, Resist the devil and he will run screaming mad away from you. Well, that's a paraphrase. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Why is he fleeing? Because he sees the power of Christ in you. So they're afraid. Now, what are they afraid of? Have you come here to torture, as it says, before the appointed time? The Greek gives a sense of a definite time. There's a time for judgment. And they didn't think it was yet. They didn't understand why he was there. Have you come here to torment? They know that they're heading for the lake of fire. They know that their time is short, Revelation 12. But as I mentioned, alluded to before, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says... That God did not spare some angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. So some of the demons are already somewhat in a pit, Tartarus, that's the word translated in the NIV, hell. They're in the pit, they're down there, and they're bound with chains to be held waiting for. Uh, the lake of fire they don't have freedom the way that the other demons do and I think these demons are very afraid they're going to lose their freedom and be sent to be tormented and tortured before judgment day could Jesus have done that oh absolutely he had power to do that and so they're terrified They're, they're absolutely afraid of Jesus now at this point it gets really thrilling look at verse 30 through 32 now if you have a red letter edition of the Bible this is the really exciting part do any of you have the red-letter red edition of the Bible? And if the editors did a good job, which they did not do in my Bible right here, all the other letters are read except this one little two-letter word is still in the black. But if you have a red-letter Bible, you're going to see the power of Jesus. Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, the only word you're going to find that Jesus speaks in this whole encounter Go. That's it. It's a word of power. Is there any striving? Any effort? Any strain from Jesus here? Absolute, total authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, said Jesus. And then what did he say to us? Go, therefore. (laughs) Demons are more obedient than we are. But at any rate, that's another sermon for another day. Anyway, he said to them, go. So they went out. They came out and went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. A single word, go, is all it takes. Luther, Martin Luther, and a mighty fortress is our God, put it this way. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not. For him, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. What's the next part? One little word shall fell. That's it. The most powerful manifestation of Satan's kingdom that will ever be in history is right before Jesus returns, the reign of the Antichrist. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 speaks of the man of sin. Revelation fills in the picture that his total demonic kingdom reigning openly on earth. And it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, Then the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed, listen, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Revelation 19 has Jesus riding on a horse in front of the armies of heaven and he has a sword coming out of his mouth. What that means is he fights with the breath of his mouth. He speaks and it is done. Isn't that powerful? That is the God that we serve. Absolute power. Over the demonic realm. And as a result of that came total healing. Luke 8.35. I like it better there. It says. When they came to Jesus. They found the man from whom the demons had gone out. Sitting at Jesus feet. Listen. Dressed and in his right mind. He's healed. He's a person again. He's free again. All by a single word from Jesus. Jesus. And finally, we get the anxious plea of disbelief, verse 33 and 34. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. This is nothing but fear speaking, folks. They are terrified. Now, we sang earlier today, Amazing Grace. The sovereignty of God is Frank chose, Amazing Grace. Thank you, Frank. Because it says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to what? Fear. And grace my fears relieved. You see, there's a fear that leads to salvation. And then there's a fear that does not lead to salvation. The disciples have already shown us the first. They're terrified of Jesus in the boat. Remember when he speaks to the wind and the waves, they say, "'What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him.'" And they're afraid, aren't they? But that fear leads them to trust in him for salvation. But these... People in the region, the Gadarenes, that's a different kind of fear. They were afraid of the demoniac. They didn't want to walk by there because they were afraid he would beat them up. But now, with a single word, this other man has come and driven out the demon. The demon, therefore, legion, is terrified of Jesus. How powerful does that make Jesus? Therefore, please, get out of here, they said. They're afraid of him. Superstition, really. Fear and unbelief. And they expelled him from their region. They're basically saying, depart from us now. Oh, that they don't stay that way, though. Because if they stay that way, Jesus will say, depart from me then. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Don't behave demonically. Don't drive Jesus away. Now, he gets in the boat and leaves and goes back to his own area, chapter 9, verse 1. But you have to put it together. In Mark's account, he leaves behind a gift to that unbelieving area. He leaves behind a gift of his grace. And I didn't put it in your outline, but you need to put it in there. It's a D, you see. He left behind grace. He left a witness. Listen to Mark chapter 5, verse 18 through 20. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell him the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus leaves one man. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Just plant it and then it just grows to be larger than anything. This guy spread. He was a traveling evangelist with his story of what God had done for him and how Christ has shown mercy. And so that was his answer. He Goes across in the boat, Jesus does, lands, drives out the demon, converts one man, sends him as a witness, and then goes back across. Mission accomplished. Isn't that awesome? That is the power of Jesus Christ. Now, how are we going to apply this to our lives? First of all, understand, the demonic world has not changed. It's still around us all the time. And Christ's power hasn't changed either. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so he has all power in heaven and earth and under the earth all power on you if you're a Christian so understand secondly balance let's not go from one ditch to the other one of the problems I have with the whole spiritual warfare thing is it lends almost to polytheistic superstition where you can't do anything until you understand the right words of power and have a whole history and all that this is a new movement we're saying that there was no advance of the kingdom of heaven before all of this spiritual mapping and all this stuff came in it can't be Rather, stand firm. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. These things are openly taught in Scripture. So let's balance. Let's not go so far. We don't want to be materialist about it and say there are no demons. We don't want to go too far the other way and say demons are the issue of my life. Every day I have to wrestle with the demons. I've got to fight them. I've got to oppose them. Demons are not the issue of your life. Christ and His supernatural power is. Thirdly, believe. Believe in Christ. Trust in Him. First of all, for salvation. For salvation. Do you realize that God saved, that Christ saved that demon-possessed man? That's why he sent him out as a witness. Go tell how much God has done for you. What has he done? Don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you in your name. (laughs) Rejoice, rather, that your names are written in heaven. The greatest thing you can get from Christ is salvation, forgiveness of sins. Trust in him for salvation. Trust in him. And rejoice. Believe that Christ's power is sufficient to conquer whatever demons you face. Rest in his name, trust in him, and worship him. I tell you, fall before Christ and his majesty. One single word, go, is all it took. And those demons went out. He is worthy of worship today. And then finally, I want you to fight. You know, you're going to go home and you're going to have demons around you, tempting you and harassing you. Put on your spiritual armor. Romans, I mean, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. And f- stand firm and fight by the power of God. Resist the devil, the scripture says, and he will flee from you. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Write that one down. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the authority of Christ. And we take, we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Jesus Christ. Close with me in prayer.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org.